Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio, a special episode dealing with the crisis that America finds itself in now. We're very fortunate to be joined by our friend Lori Garrett who is an American science journalist, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, who has written a number of books on uh, uh, infectious diseases and outbreaks. Hi, Lori. Hi there. Also from Brooklyn, New York, we've got Ryan Goodman, my co-host, the the co-editor of Just Security. Uh, uh, Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. So let's begin with a bit of an update as to where we are and turn to Lori for that. And then Ryan will have some questions and I'll have some questions. But we seem to be entering a new phase of this crisis in the United States uh, with the disease in almost, I think, in all states, but West Virginia, at least the last time I looked, um, and very, very widespread um, uh, uh establishment of quarantine rules uh, from coast to coast. Um, uh, The the federal government is trying to give the impression that it's on top of this and doing daily press conferences. The markets don't seem to believe it quite yet. What do you think, Lori? Well, first of all, I think I want to slightly correct something you said, which is a mistake that everybody in the media is making. You're not by any means the only one, that we have X number of cases. No, We have a number of cases that we know about Mm -hmm. that have been formally reported. That is not in the least bit relevant to reality. What we don't know right now, we still have no clue, is how extensive the viral infection is before everybody starts taking steps to control it in the United States. And that, of course, is because we don't have testing, and we still don't have it. We still don't have the capacity for... Dr. Jones in uh, Muskogee, Oklahoma, to see a patient who, or speak on the phone with a patient who is running a fever, has a, a dry, consistent cough, is having shortness of breath, climbing a flight of stairs, chills, fatigue, and wants to be tested for COVID-19. That doctor in Muskogee, unfortunately, is 99.9% of the time compelled to say, I'm sorry, we don't have tests. The hospital doesn't have tests. The health department is overwhelmed. I'm afraid I'm just going to have to treat you over the telephone. Go to bed. That's where we are right now. It stands in quite striking uh, contradiction to a number of the places that seem to have gotten their arms around this best, Korea, testing more people per day than we've tested so far. Um, 
I was just reading a thread on the web from somebody in Singapore who says that Singapore has not shut down and done all the quarantines we've done because they have essentially ubiquitous testing. If you go into a building, they take your temperature. If they need to test you, they test you. If you test positive, you are obligated to quarantine for 14 days and medical uh, treatment is available. But it seems like testing is the linchpin. Am I, am I, am I overstating that or, or is that accurate? No, it's absolutely true. South Korea was running a high on uh, February 29th of uh, more than 900 new cases that day identified. And as of today, uh, it's already close of day in South Korea. And on this date, they have only 74 new cases. That's a very dramatic reduction in basically a little over two weeks. And it was accomplished by testing, 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 and more testing. Identifying chains of transmission, um, you know, which in their case were heavily based on a particular religious cult, a Christian cult that had about a quarter million members. Uh, and chasing down who was in contact with whom, who was at a given place that was known to have had cases at a given time, and testing everybody who was there. Um, in Singapore, which I have said over and over again should be the model for the world on this, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking at the situation in Singapore, and I was there looking at their SARS epidemic, and this is a country that really believes in learning curves. They improve and model their health system, their laboratory system, and their social organizing based on experience. And since they already went through SARS and had a terrible outcome with healthcare workers dying as a result of treating their patients, they've completely revamped all infection control procedures in every hospital in Singapore. The prime minister took this very seriously and did a fireside chat to the nation three weeks ago that went on and on, lasted well over an hour. And they, they have a very frank and open and honest approach to dealing with their outbreak. As far as I can tell, and I follow the Singapore chat rooms, it doesn't appear that anybody is doubting the, the government's accuracy or thinks the government is deceiving them. And that's a key element to success. Here in the United States, you know, political pundits that know more a lot about politics than I all say they can't remember a time when America was more deeply divided since the Civil War. We are a nation full of people with information and counter-information that is as likely to be based on ideology as facts. And in a situation like that, with a president who seems to change his opinion on every single facet of this epidemic by the hour, certainly press conference to press conference. Um, the, the, the division among Americans becomes our number one Achilles heel as we go into this epidemic full bore. Yeah, it does, it does seem like the president's allergy to testing, his fear that tests would lead to higher numbers, as they inevitably would, has been the fatal flaw in the way that we've approached this. And I would argue that had the stock market actually seen uh, a, a massive commitment to testing and getting our arms around this and willingness to acknowledge what's going on, 
uh, it would have responded better than it did to, you know, uh, yet another Fed rate cut on, on, on Sunday, which produced a dramatic fall this morning. Now, let me turn to Ryan, who's got some questions for you, too, uh, Lori. Uh, Ryan, um, uh, as as you may know, was at Just Security and uh, had been an, uh, 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 an official in the Defense Department. But what most people don't know about Ryan is that he's had the foresight in the case of this kind of outbreak to 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 marry a woman who is a Harvard trained infectious disease specialist. Um, so I, I'm ho- I, I assume you're very secure where you are, uh, Ryan. But uh, perhaps you have some questions that come out of all of that for Lori. Thanks, David. Um, and thanks, Laurie, for um, all of your contributions to the public discussion about this. It's extremely important. Um, I guess I had a different a set of different kinds of questions. <clears throat> the one is, the one, uh, what trajectory are we on when we look at these growth curves? Uh, is it that we should be thinking about the United States writ large versus what happened in uh, South Korea, what happened in Wuhan, China, what's happening in Italy, or should we also be looking at it more in terms of um, states and cities? So the idea that um, Seattle seems to be the worst situation right now, then maybe it's uh, the Bay Area, then Boston, then New York, and that it's really if you look at, start to look at it that way, it's actually even dramatically worse um, in terms of how this is developing right now. Well, you're asking a pretty fundamental question about what makes the American experience more difficult than any, any other advanced industrial economy in the world, post-industrial. Uh, and let me, let me just take that in a couple of pieces. The first is that unlike our counterparts in Europe, where, in fact, you can see the EU falling apart and country to country, they're closing borders, they're, you know, blaming and counter-blaming each other throughout the EU, but their individual health systems and public health responses are top-down systems. Almost all the European health systems, and that would include public health, were originally created by the royal elite of the respective country or territory. And so uh, the French system was created by King Louis, the whatever number, and filtered down over the centuries. And the same in the UK, Germany, etc. We, in contrast, have a health and particularly public health infrastructure that was built from the bottom up, from small towns, counties, up towards the federal level. And our whole legal system, every single law and regulation of any real importance related to emergency provisions of health are local laws. In some states, they're so local that they're city laws that differ as you go from one county to another driving around a state. And so we're dealing with this against a huge patchwork. And what that means is that it may be apparent at this moment that Seattle has the largest problem in our country with COVID-19, but Seattle also happens to have a very vigorous testing system, one of the most aggressive public health departments in the country, a whole body of law that supports public health in the state of Washington and in the county 
uh, and cities uh, in the Seattle area. And, you know, there was the famous incident of the -the jack-in-the-box disease. Do you remember that? About a decade and a half ago, children were dying after allegedly after eating a jack-in-the-box. turned out to have nothing to do with jack-in-the-box, but with how we process hamburger meat in America that ended up being contaminated with this new, very dangerous variant of the E. coli uh, bacteria. It got labeled the -the jack-in-the-box disease because it emerged and was originally in a totally different part of the country, but was first spotted by the very vigilant Seattle Health System which spotted it in a local jack-in-the-box and figured out where it was coming from. So it's easy to point at a place in America and say, oh, they have the most cases. But that may not be an indicator of the caseload. It's an indicator of the vigilance and the skill set and the legal backing that the local public health authorities have. So, you know, if you hear there's no cases in West Virginia, Is it that there's no cases in West Virginia, or is it that the West Virginia health departments have been cut to the bone, have almost no one to do the work to get out there and figure out whether or not they have the disease, and their hospitals have been cut to the bone, and people don't have health insurance, and so we just don't see it. I know that Ryan's got another question to follow up, but just to clarify on that last point, um, I've seen some estimates from some epidemiologists that have been in the neighborhood of 20, 30,000 cases maybe out there. Have you seen any estimates of where we are absent this testing? I mean, do you have any good guess that you're working with? Yeah, um, there's a lot of good guesswork going on, reckoning going on right now. What we can do is look at where we are on the trajectory of other epidemics around the world. So we can compare the COVID-19 trend in the United States to what we see in, say, South Korea, Singapore, Italy, France, Germany, China. And if you do that, you can see that we are exactly like, like as if we're walking on the same path following Italy, but lagging behind Italy by somewhere around nine to 10 days. So what you see today in Italy is likely to be what we will be experiencing 10 days from now. Um, That means that we probably have uh, person-to-person spread of this virus going on in all 50 states already and several clusters that may be large enough that we're looking at thousands of cases. It's, I think, a real eye-opener to see what one of the best, if not the best, uh, municipal public health department in the nation, that would be New York City, and the New York State Health Department, were able to figure out from one case, a lawyer who lived in one county and worked in Manhattan, uh, they're able to figure out with testing and tracing and good detective work that one individual infected 50 others. Now, that's a level of spread that if that were to continue, if you were to see from each one person 50 more cases, we would be looking at an explosion that would just, you know, jaw drop and overwhelm every single hospital in America practically overnight. In other words, literally we could be by this time next week looking at all hospitals full. 
Now, let's just assume that that is what's called a super spreader, meaning an aberrant case. He was particularly infectious uh, and, and his activities and the behaviors of the health workers he interacted with were all, um, you know, sort of worst case scenario because they didn't have a high index of suspicion and concern and didn't take appropriate precautions. All right, given that, let's just, let's just assume that's an aberrant case. But even if we're talking about a, a factor of three, where each individual that's been infected back in January in the United States, and we know for sure there were cases in the United States going back to mid-January, if not early January, if each one of those infected just three other people, we would already by now have a very high rate of silent, undetected infection across America. And in some pockets, it would be very, very concentrated. Okay, Ryan, did you have, I, I know you had several questions, so let me go back to you. Sure. Uh, so I want to kind of throw out a couple ideas just to, you know, bounce them off of you, Lauren, see, you know, take it however you want to, in whatever direction you want to take it. So one is circling a little bit back to the idea of how bad it is that we don't have widespread testing to try to explain that more to the audience in a certain sense of what does it, would widespread testing be able to tell us about the uh, spread of the virus in, so that we could engage in much more effective uh, infection control? And then married to that question is, do we think that there are potentially things like demographics in the United States that can either contribute to or potentially um, not be as bad as other situations because of the environmental factors? And what I mean by that is there's some um, suggestion by social scientists that Italy is hard hit because of the age of their population, that they just have many more people in their country that are in an, that older age bracket that's more susceptible to COVID. And Italy has a high uh, level of contact between the generations so that the older people are um, the social contacts that they have with younger people who are carrying the COVID is also um, very bad news uh, for them. So things like that is what I think about in terms of how ghastly it is that we don't have widespread testing, because if we did have widespread testing, we'd be able to start to answer those kinds of questions and then be able to engage in better infection control. Is that the right way to think about it? So just throwing that to you to do with it what you wish. Again, two big, big questions. Let me take the, the testing part first. Um, actually, uh, one, one problem that we have in the United States is a lot of public confusion and politician confusion about testing in the sense that there's two different kinds of testing. And they actually should not physically be the same tests. One kind is diagnostic. That is, are you infected? Do we need to rush you to the intensive care unit right now? And that diagnostic test has to be incredibly accurate. There are legal ramifications, treatment ramifications, survival uh, ramifications. And so um, you, can't, you, you don't have room to fudge for false positives or negatives on a diagnostic test. America's whole thrust is about diagnostic testing, which is most appropriately executed in a medical setting. The, there's another kind of test, surveillance testing. That can be a lot sloppier, but it needs to be a lot faster, cheaper, and easier to do. 
And surveillance testing is uh, the sort of key to the gumshoe detective work of tracking any epidemic and answering the sorts of questions you were asking in your second query, you know, what age group is most at risk, who's spreading it to whom, um, which, you know, it would have been immensely helpful as cities across the country were making this painful decision about whether or not to close schools if we had a better idea of whether or not children are actually little vectors carrying the virus and potentially transmitting it to grandma when the school is closed and mom goes to work and leaves the child uh, in the apartment with grandma. Um, and we, we don't have a surveillance tool. As far as I know, at this moment, nobody's really seriously even developing one. There's not a lot of money thrown to it. It's, it, it for reasons that absolutely defy my imagination, it seems to have escaped the entire um, CDC and, and national government um, radar scope. So we're, what that means is that we're going into this epidemic flying as blind as possible. It's like trying to land a plane when your radar is broken and there's a fog bank ahead. We're heading for the landing strip. We know it's somewhere over there. We just hope we don't hit any buildings as we come down. You know, one of the things that strikes me in, in, in listening to the federal government reaction, and I'd, I'd be interested in a, a kind of a broader set of, of your reactions to their reaction, um, is a refrain from, you know, the president. And there have been several refrains that, that, that are that are based in lies or misunderstanding. But one of the ones that I find particularly galling is the, well, who could have seen this coming? Um, and, you know, of course, you wrote a book, The Coming Plague, in 1995. Um, 94. That, oh, excuse me. Excuse me. But, <laughs> but, I, but I remember reading it then and, uh, you know, have, have been sort of expecting this, you know, ever since. Um, and, of course... I mean, there have been movies made about this. You know, the, it's it's not like this was a, a, a secret. Uh, and the federal government has been better prepared for it in the past. And funding was cut back and offices were shut down and, and, and so forth. But, but knowing this was going to happen was absolutely crystal clear. Um, and I'm just wondering what your reaction when he says that kind of thing is. And then if you if you were going to give a critique of the Trump administration's reaction. And, you know, we have five minutes here, so it, it might, I guess it'd be a, a short critique. What, what would you focus on? Well, I think we, you know, we've hashed, rehashed, everybody knows this is a highly unsatisfactory response. The president keeps changing his messaging. All, you know, we're obviously deeply distressed about how this federal response has proceeded and see no real reason to believe it's going to get particularly better. Um, I think the helpful thing going forward is to ask, well, is it possible for America to do battle successfully with this virus? We'll, we'll define success in a minimalist term, um, meaning without massive loss of life and uh, 15 weeks of uh, total societal disruption. Is it possible to do that um, in the absence of clear guidance and leadership from the federal level. Can the states do the job? 
can the counties and cities do the job? Because right now they are the ones doing it. What, say what you want about the federal government and its endless press conferences, but concretely, the states so far feel they're very much on their own. And there we come back to this patchwork quilt problem. Some states have given short shrift to every single aspect of health for their people and are very politically um, committed to the private sector approach to health. And this has diminished the ability for the state to ensure health access and monitoring and disease surveillance that affects anybody but those with full private insurance coverage. Other states have taken a much more, uh, a broader view and have come to see that the protection of the weakest links in society is essential to protect all the links in society in an epidemic. And so I would be contrasting here, for, for example, the state of Mississippi or South Carolina um, or Oklahoma to the state of uh, perhaps uh, California or New York or Massachusetts. So unfortunately, without a real federal lever of control and pressure on the states, we will see, I think, very great differences based on social class, based on race and geography in both uh, diagnosis and survival from this epidemic. Uh, Ryan, do you have a quick question? We've only got two minutes. Um, I guess just a, one quick question. If you've been tracking it, the British government's idea of herd immunity um, as their policy, and then there's some scientists who have come out against it. It's the it's, My understanding is this is a very unique, no other country in the world is doing this to combat COVID. 19, it goes against the WHO's guidance. And that is um, based, if I understand it correctly, on the scientific understanding that we generally have, which is after a certain percentage of the population is exposed to a virus, there's enough immunity within the entire population that it, the virus will peter out, but it actually therefore means you're deliberately sacrificing human life um, in order to get there. And it's not even clear that it would be effective in saving their elderly population from a more devastating blow. Is, that, is there something there that you'd want to talk about? Because I, this morning I had a phone conversation with somebody who's an incredibly intelligent person in Britain, and they said, oh, but, you know, uh, the prime minister's listening to the scientists, but, which was uh, very shocking to me. Well, the minister of health herself is bedridden with COVID, so they're not listening to the minister of health. Uh, and I don't know anyone of any credibility in public health in the UK who is happy with this policy. In fact, I mean, the leading medical journal of, of the world, The Lancet, which is based in London, the editor has his hair on fire right now. And uh, I've been in communication with a number of colleagues there. People are just dumbfounded by this policy because it does indeed, as you say, assume that a fair percentage of the British population will die of this disease uh, and that it will somehow burn through. Uh, I suppose it will cull the herd before the rest of the herd attains immunity. And, you know, there's one really big question mark about this, which is there's increasing evidence in China that people can get reinfected, that individuals who got COVID early on in the epidemic then survived it, were released from hospital, three, four weeks later, they're sick again. 
Now, is that because the testing could not get down to find that hidden little reservoir of virus that may have lingered in their bodies and then resurged, or are they reinfected? We're not sure, and to my knowledge, no one has isolated neutralizing antibodies against this COVID-19 virus. So, you know, we could actually be watching the British base a whole policy on something that is devastatingly wrong and that they won't have a huge immune population at the end of the day. They may end up with a weekly immune population that responds to common colds and a whole range of coronaviruses, but not specifically with neutralizing capacity against this particular virus. Well, that's disturbing. It does seem like a, a kind of a crazy policy to me. We, we promised that we we're going to wrap this up right now. The last question with it can have a, a brief answer, I guess, is, Lori, if you were a betting woman right now, how long do you think this social disruption period, this quarantine period, restaurants closed, bars closed, gyms closed, and so forth, is likely to last? And I mean, you can give a range, but is it eight weeks? Is it 15 weeks? Is it, you know, do you think it, it may wrap up well, sooner? David, I'll tell you, here's what I'm telling people, because I get so much email inquiries on this specific question. People who have access to an alternative second residence, go to the country, quote unquote, or go stay with their parents in Florida or whatever. Um, but the idea being, should I get out of the city and go to alternative destination? And I say to them, you have to ask yourself, with whom and where do you want to be hunkered down for a minimum of six weeks? And do you think that hunker down location has the best services, the best hospitals, food access, and social cohesion that is better than your primary location? You have to make that decision, and you need to go pretty quickly because uh, all forms of mass transit are going to start shutting down as this week wears on. Uh, I think six weeks for some parts of the country may be optimistic. We may be going out well into the middle of the summer. And I have personally advocated that both the Democratic and Republican conventions not take place um, in late July and early August because I, I just cannot perceive any way that there, those events, those crowded, noisy events, can transpire when there most assuredly will be um, isolated individuals still infected at that time. Well, that's uh, chilling, but 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 deeply informed insight. Lori, thanks once again for coming back. I hope that we will be able to talk to you again during the course of this, and uh, I even more hope that we'll be able to talk to you again after this is over, whenever that may come to pass. Uh, uh, Ryan, thank you for joining in, and you and I can follow up on this on our usual uh, podcast. Of course, podcasting uh, is one of those great activities that um, all of you can participate in over the course of the next six weeks or whatever, because you can listen at home and you can listen in a safe place. In the meantime, be safe, take precautions, take care of those around you, take care of your community, um, and uh, join us again here um, uh, throughout this week and all the coming weeks. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Lori. Thanks to everybody for listening. Bye-bye.